Hello and welcome to In the Thick of It, Profit and Losses weekly podcast with Colin Lambert and myself, Galen Stops, where we discuss all the most interesting developments that we've uh, seen or overheard in the FX markets this week. Um, Colin, to kick us off, one of the, the kind of the big news stories that a few people have been talking about is City's decision to apparently, apparently, they say, um, cull a yes. number of FX platforms, you know, quote unquote platforms, that it, it's willing to price into. Um, I read your column with some interest this morning. For those who, who sadly haven't had the time to read it, give us your take on, on this news. <laughs> well, I think most of it was gloating because I called such a development about eight weeks ago. I'm not sure there's anything else to say. You want to talk about predictions for the year, Galen. I'm doing live predictions. I don't know what the problem is. <laughs> In-game You'll no doubt gloat. Yeah. Exactly, yes. Yeah, you'll no doubt gloat at the end of the year over something you got right. There was a tap in, you know, for an easy, easy goal. But um, let me tell you, my friend, getting them right into a year—that's the big effort. Um, no, I mean, I think it's a thoroughly sensible move if it is indeed taking place. I've been speaking to people um, at platforms and maybe you might, who are familiar with what's going on around this process, and they tell me that something is going on. And it will result in fewer platforms. Um, there is obviously a bit of confusion over how many there'll be at the end of it. And I think that'll probably be part of the process that City's going through and say, look, okay, here we go. Um, let's see what we end up with. Um, but if you look at it, there is a problem with fragmentation. There is a problem with recycled liquidity. You know, we, we, we sit here and we get platforms and there's, and some quite big platforms as well will turn around and say, yeah, actually, when you really put them on the spot, we don't actually have that much original liquidity. And you look at the paper last year from the BIS Markets Group, which highlighted how most platforms are priced off the primary venues. Um, there might be the odd customer here or there. So I think, to me, it's a sensible thing to look at this because, I mean, I was talking to someone today who works for a regional bank, not a, you know, a top 10 global bank, and they had something like 85 different connections to platforms. And this is just a, you know, this is a, a well-regarded regional player um, that I happen to be talking to. It, you can imagine how many, um, someone like, you know, a city, UBS, JP Morgan. And, and I guess interestingly, you know, what, what would this mean for someone like an XDX or a, a Citadel or a Jump? Would they want to, would they want to go in this direction? So I think what we're probably looking at is, you know, my understanding is at the end of this, they're hoping to have about 15 to 20 platforms that they're connected to. They're happy to cut off a lot of others. Um, I'm also told that the aggregation, so certain aggregation providers um, are very much in their firing line because they, um, A, they're quite expensive, some of these aggregation venues. Uh, B, I think there's a question over the quality of the flow that they see and if you go back three years, then you know, you'd have a debate within the bank, wouldn't you? Well, yeah, we want to cut this big global macro hedge fund off. And the head of sales said, well, you can't do that because of my sales credits. And the bank would say, no, we need this for the flow for the Euro money survey. And then somebody else would saying, well, yeah, but the customer's what we do, so we've got to do this. And besides, we make money out of this customer. And they make some vague assertion around how they make money in you know, some really obscure corporate bond or something, whilst the mainstream markets are getting absolutely crushed by them. Now, we've got the data for this stuff. And more importantly, we have the analytics. 
So I think you, you, they're kind of looking at it. This is a follow-on to what they did earlier this year. It's just another case. This is the next step in city rationalizing their FX business. They looked at their PB business and went, frankly, this is getting a bit much. And they put that paper out, didn't they? To say, like, we are, you know, underpricing this dramatically. Then they cut several of their bigger clients off because of the, the problems they were causing in terms of the infrastructure spend. Now they're looking at it going like, well, do we need all these platforms? To me, it's perfectly rational. So, so this is, this is a rationalization of the business, not a withdrawal from FX then? No, I, I, I honestly don't think it's anything to do with that. Um, I think, you know, if you look at it, I think most people will tell you there's going to be probably, and you could draw them on an envelope, there's probably 10 to 15 meaningful platforms where you connect with yeah. um, unique clients. Beyond that, you're just connecting. It's, it's just more, you know, garbage in, garbage out. It's just like you're connecting up and you've got all these API connections, but it's the same client across 17 platforms or whatever. There's other stuff there, you know, retail aggregators, and I think the Prime of Primes will be in, will be, um, in focus here in terms of what it costs and or what the value of that flow is. Um, so, no, I absolutely don't see it as a withdrawal. I think it's them looking at it going like, well, you know, here's the thing. If you actually want to put – liquidity is quite a precious commodity, and it is so often um, underestimated how valuable it is because we went through that period when the banks themselves in particular were saying, oh, there's no problem with liquidity. You know, you, how many panels have you and I done over the years on liquidity when we've said – Guess what, everybody? You know, is there a problem with liquidity? And they all go, absolutely not. No, no problem at all. Well, there, there has been. And this is proving it to me. But what City is saying, I think, if they're doing this, is, is very much along the lines of, well, this is fine. We've got so much liquidity to go around. We've got to manage the credit on this, credit on this. It's easier to do that across 15 to 20 venues than it is across 60 venues. And we've done our analysis on these venues, and frankly, we don't see value. So I don't so see it at all. Here's a question for you, right? Uh, a hypothetical, which is always fun. Um, yeah. if, <laughs> if, let's say, tomorrow, right, every single bank on the street decides to say, you know what, I just want 20 platforms. Now, as, as you say, yep. we report on the volumes of the platforms that publicly report them, right? And for some of the ones that you know, the don't, we have a rough idea, right? And, and let's yeah. be honest, you know, what, once you get down to, say, platform number 20, there's not a huge amount of volume going through there. Really, no. Right? Um, no. So, so if, if, let's say, all the major banks said tomorrow, you know what, I just want 20 platforms, I'm just, you know, going to do it by size. The, the 20 smallest, you know, we're just going to cut those ones. Thing. Do you think it would have a significant impact on the FX market as a whole? No, not at all. It's like, you know, if you look at it, it's like, you know, you look at the volume surveys, you know, 70% of volume goes through six players. And in the platform world, um, probably 95% of what goes on on public platforms goes through 20 venues. You know, private aggregation is a different thing when it's, you know, aggregating to the bank. The yeah, yeah. But generally, yeah, or it's, a, or it's something they build themselves. But these these platforms 
I don't think we'd see any difference whatsoever. I really don't. The the thing I think is interesting is, so to give you a, hypoth- a hypothetical back, do you think if this happens and we went down to, say, 15 platforms, do you think we, w- we would have a couple of surprises in terms of those platforms that would be cut off? That's a great question. Um, I have them every now and again. <laughs> I, mean, I there might be one or two surprises, but I suspect if if you and I sat down and made a list of the ones that we expected to be kept, maybe we'd be surprised. I feel fairly confident that we'd be maybe one or two out. Yeah. How would you back us to, to do that? I, I I would actually tend to agree with you. I just I, I my suspect it's one of these things that always always you know comes around to surprise you. I, I I suspect that we might our one or two could be names that we didn't expect to see that have become yeah. household type names, and you're like you know wow they're cutting them off because you know some of these bigger platforms are very expensive um, and. It's not just a question of the brokerage and the cost of connectivity and the data and everything else that comes with it. It's also the yield per, you know, yield per million that come from these platforms. And some of the, some of the, you know, well-known, best-known platforms out there, um, have the worst yield for the LPs because of the, you know, because of the structure and the rules around the platform. Whereas some of the smaller platforms that might be doing, you know, five yards a day, um, they actually provide a bigger yield for the LPs. You might find one of those being like, actually, you know what? I'll support this one. And there's also the element that it could be a unique client on there. Right. But yeah, generally yeah. speaking, I don't think you, I don't, I don't honestly believe that unique clients exist in the multi-dealer platform world. A unique client exists in my mind. And <laughs> to use a, Excuse a familiar expression. I have no facts to back this up, but I think it's right. <laughs> um, I think that unique clients are beyond single dealer platforms. If you're a client you're of any size or scope, then you will be either on one one of the major single dealer platforms, one of the major multi dealer platforms, or you'll be on one of three platforms if you're on one of the minor ones you'll be on one of the bigger ones as well you'll duplicate somewhere well well anyone anyone i feel like by definition anyone who's on a multi-dealer platform isn't a unique client well no exactly yeah but then these platforms are selling these things oh we've got unique flow yeah we have unique clients um some of them do have unique clients in as much as they are on that multi-dealer platform only. However, they're also connected yeah. to the banks and the LPs and other LPs directly. Um, so they're not unique clients in that fashion. Yeah, you know, they're they're also part of the clients for the uh, you know, for the other to, for the individual LPs on a bilateral basis. Because let's face it, most of the volume in foreign exchange still goes through on a bilateral basis, a bilateral disclosed basis. Um, so I think that's you know that's that's a factor that's got to be taken into account. There's something else actually. It struck me when I was writing something today, um, in fact, the column today, sorry, was um, there's obviously, there's also a surveillance aspect to this because the more 
connections you have and the more platforms you're pricing to and seeing volume go through, the more complex your oversight becomes. And oversight is an expensive business. You know, you've not only got to pay for the surveillance technology, you've got to pay for experts to actually know what they're talking about. Because, you know, we've gone through a period where, you know, um, I can't think of a better word to put it, but amateurs are trying to judge behavior. Um, it's going to be easier to monitor activity across a smaller number of platforms. It's going to be easier to see what's happening with your clients. If your clients are using algos, for instance, we've spoken about this before. If a client is using an algo and abuses the market, market liquidity, where does that leave the LP that gave them that algo in the first place? They actually don't see the flow. They don't know what volume is going through, but it leaves them somewhat exposed, um, especially yeah. if they're spreading it across multiple platforms. They'll be able to spot it easier on fewer platforms. If the client has an algo and they connect to the internal pool, which most of them is what most of them want anyway, and a few external pools, I think that becomes a much easier um, problem to solve, and it becomes a lot easier to prove to your oversight regulatory or compliant internal compliance that actually no we are not playing around um if you've got 70 platforms all it needs is somebody with access to that platform to turn and say okay i'll offer you know like three million dollar swiss at 70 not knowing that another part of the business is actually holding a custom ruler at 72 to sell now when you pick all that up that looks like they're jumping in front of a customer order that will raise a red flag somewhere. But in reality, it's the complexity of the platform world or the platform connectivity matrix that's caused it. So there could also be a question of, you know, yes, it will solve them, it will save them money in terms of connectivity. And yes, it will save them money in terms of the technology spent. But I think there'll be a lot of other savings elsewhere that could even dwarf that. Um, so, so to sum this, yeah. Well, I'm just going to say, I'm just going to say to you then, this is probably the third, what could be called controversial move cities made this year. Do you think this is the bank trying to take a leadership position in changing the industry? Or do you think it's just a question? It just happens to have happened. The debate happens to have happened first at City. Um, I, neither. Okay. So I don't think it, it, it's just a coincidence that, that these changes are happening at City. Um, I think there's obviously been a kind of a reassessment. You know, they obviously looked at and reassessing, you know, their FX business as a whole, right? And as you yeah. say, trying to rationalize it and make more sense out of it. Do I think that this is them d deliberately, you know, planting a flag in the ground and saying, you know, we are, we are taking a leadership role. We are kind of leading the future. I, as you would say, I don't have uh, I don't have any kind of facts or evidence behind this, but going going with my gut, I suspect it's it's not uh, they're not making a statement um, about you know about the, the market or them as leaders in it. I think that they've just kind of more broadly you know taken a step back, look at their business, and then think yep. thought and kind of acted out where they think it makes sense for them to make changes. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, the motivation, you could be right. I get the feeling that the PB thing is still to play out. Um, I think the other PB still think that, you know, City's given them an in. And I yeah. kind of still think that they might turn around in a year's time and go, 
actually, you know what, they were right, this is a little bit too much to handle. Um, but this one already, I've got EFX people saying to me, no, this is a good idea. Um, we have this. So this is going to be my next question. Is, is this discussion? Yeah. Yeah. Go on. Is this a trend then? Are we going to see other other banks making a similar call? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because yeah, I've already got people saying to me that this is we had this discussion internally. Um, we've been having it for some time. No one's actually done anything about it. Now we have someone out there actually done something about or allegedly doing something about it. I suppose we need to carry on saying, but doing something about it. Um, inevitably, the others will follow. And I think it will happen. The interesting question will be the um, non-bank market makers to me, what what their view of this will be, um, because they are connected to you know everybody. They're quoting so many contracts. They have the technology to be able to handle it, and that's all they do. So their technology spend is maybe a little lower. Well, it's, sorry, it's a lot lower than the banks. Um, but in terms, you know, because connectivity is really their game. I wonder whether they would follow such a lead. Um, it wouldn't. It wouldn't do them any harm to maybe cut the amount of platforms they've got. And I often, and I do wonder if we see more bank LPs move away from certain platforms. If you see the non-bank LPs move away as well, then that kind of answers the chicken and egg sitch question that we get a lot around: Well, are non-bank liquidity providers really recycling bank liquidity? You know, in the money. Yeah. Don't, don't get me wrong. I know a lot of them. I mean, XTX are very proud of their correlations, and they make a lot. You know, they make a lot of pricing around correlations from other markets, and and the computing power is enormous. And I'm sure some of the others do as well. But generally speaking, you know, if you're looking at a lot of the people, a lot of the firms in that space, I would suggest that maybe if they see the banks disappearing off a platform, then a big source of their data quality data is disappearing with them, they may end up going the same way. Um, so then this, you expect this story to run and run a little bit? Because it sounds like what we're summing yeah. up is it's going to have no significant impact right now because we right. agree that even if all the banks cut it off, it wouldn't be a, a huge deal. But the significance could be in kind of a broader trend away from fragmentation. Yes. And, and, and that's, I mean, that's something I wrote about back in October. I think there is a real weariness with fragmentation. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Come in on, the industry. Yeah. It doesn't happen often, mate. Let me do it. Let me, let me celebrate for at least six hours until I'm knocked down. <laughs> <laughs> um, one other story I wanted to pick up, uh, this week yeah. is, uh, Mark Johnson has filed for a rehearing of his appeal. Yes. Yeah. Um, is, is this a story that's going to run and run? Oh, you kind of hope it does. Um, if you are like me, sympathetic to his cause, because if it does, if it is a story that runs and runs, then it means that the rehearing has been granted and we'll, we'll go through the process again. Um, the reason it may not is because the, um, the on on bank, on bonk or on yeah whole bench hearing that they yeah, applied yeah. for along with the rehearing by the original panel. Um, I've been told about one in ten thousand of these cases a year are granted. So it's a minimal number of uh, cases that are granted. Um, 
I have spoken to people who are in discussions about what they can do to submit to the um, appeals uh, bench to get it reheard to support the case for a rehearing. So it may not run and run. If it does, it will probably be good news for him because he's. Uh, it means that he's got that hearing. Um, it's different. I mean, it's a tough one, isn't it? I mean, you, you kind of get this feeling of helplessness, as I stated on Monday. But most people who understand foreign exchange to any degree realize that there has been a complete and utter misunderstanding of how things operate in this case on the part of... Um, and, and the problem starts with the original jury who convicted him. Because once you convict yeah. him in the US legal system, it becomes very, very difficult, especially again, you know, if it's a government case, becomes very, very difficult to overturn things. The burden of proof has to then then goes to you. It's as though, yes, you're innocent until proven guilty, but once you're proven guilty, you're guilty and pro- until proven innocent. So yeah. um there is that there is that challenge to it. Um the reason I think it should be heard again, and I think a lot of people tend to share my view, is that um part of the appeal panel's decision said, well, his statement after the trade and we've discussed this before, meant that Ken Energy could have um, not settled the trade. Now, I made an example, I made an example um, earlier this week, and I'll kind of repeat that one. Let's assume you've got two banks out there, because general size of orders we're talking about, they'll go to a bank. We have two banks out there. Bank A has just been given an order by a client in Germany to buy $2 billion Swiss. Not the most liquid market, but it's okay because you can, yeah, you can proxy trade in euro dollar and then do the cross. Then let's assume that Bank B in London has been given an order to buy three billion dollar Swiss by a different client for different reasons. They just happen to coincide, and all of a sudden five billion dollar Swiss hits the market or hits euro dollar in a fairly, you know, short period of time. And so you've got two banks in the world liquidity. I should be able to do this much quicker. This is becoming a struggle. All of a sudden, the market gaps and we have a problem. And we've got two customers going, like, well, what, what happened there? You, you clearly ramped it against me when they did nothing of the sort. And then the customers say, OK, we're not going to do that. Well, first things first, what these appeal panel, what this appeal panel said was, in effect, is that is the documentation is secondary to their judgment. Because under is the documentation, you have to settle a trade that you do. It's the legal documents that you sign, and they show and they show how you do it. So all of a sudden, we've got the court system saying, uh, "Well, actually, no, you don't have to settle these trades." That's that's a legal nightmare for the FX industry, and it's kind of been forgotten in the furore around the fact that he, you know, his appeal failed. But that was a statement in their judgment, and that to me is incredibly dangerous for our industry. Um, I think the other thing as well that came out from it as well, that they said um, when they started going on about, oh, you know, well, um, he said it was only going to be, you know, like um, a few, uh, was it 20 pips? I think it was. Um, now, what he actually said was in an ideal world, it would be 20 pips. And I can tell you December in any year is not an ideal world. Um Cable is never an ideal world to try and do these things. And eight other banks knew about the Cairn Energy deal because there was an RFP out to them. 
And one of the one of these statements in the one of the phone calls, uh, Mark Johnson was told um, a colleague of his in Hong Kong, the I think it was quote the Deutsche M and A guys have already been on to us asking if we've got the deal. So clearly everyone knew about the deal. So it wasn't an ideal world, and the market went higher. So roll that into a nightmare scenario. What are we looking at? Um, you make a you make a statement to a client that's you know, <laughs> unless face it, if there's someone who knows anything about guessing, it's me. <laughs> I'm just listening to this <laughs> on a regular basis. <laughs> but if you make a if you kind of make a guess, an an educated guess, and it turns out to be wrong, you could be facing the judge and jury. That's intolerable for the industry and intolerable for the clients. So what will happen is nobody will talk to the clients. And that will have a problem with liquidity because ultimately all we're going to do is try and say, we're not going to touch anything to do with this. We will not internalize any of your flow. We will not talk to you about what our go-to is. We will not talk to you about any of this. And you'll end up clients thrashing around in the dark, hoping that they get it right. And believe me, you know what's going to happen and they're going to get it wrong. So that element of um, worry as well. Go on. Well, one thing I would say is just coming back to your the, the question about um, you know clients you know not having to to settle. So I did, uh, and I need to dig up my notes on this because there were a, la- a lot of Latin phrases involved. But I did speak to one legal expert in the U.S. about that. Um, and if I'm the long and short of it was that in cases and instances such as this where that kind of comment wasn't the central point of the legal case, it actually doesn't become a precedent. Right. Um, well, they, but, they, but, I think they, let, they went on three points, me, and that was one of them. Let me let me check my notes and come yeah. back with more on that next week. Yeah, because, I mean, ultimately what it comes down to is you're, you're looking at somebody there who's, who's um, saying, it was a material misrepresentation. And I think the word material is really important. So, you know, and I think it's about the right to control. So, yeah, I mean, if that's the case, great. But do you think that's going to stop a legal firm trying to take someone on? I'm not sure it will. So, yeah, I think we need to look at that. And there was a clear misunderstanding around the use of the word ramp. Um, you know, they, there's a negative connotation with ramp quite rightly. And as a foreign exchange market professional, I would tell you ramp is when you unduly move the market by being overly aggressive. The jury and the appeal court seem to think that ramping is any time you buy it and it moves. And again, it's a fundamental misunderstanding. So, yes, um, it's a one in 10,000 chance. Um, here's hoping that uh, we actually get something out of it. So we will see. Okay. Well, um, let, let's wrap up the week with a cheerier note then. Yes, um, let's do which this. Is, Come on in. Okay. So, so uh, Siemens. Gamesa, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, which um, is a renewable energy company, does wind turbines, um, has arranged sustainable FX hedging contracts totaling 174 million euros in a, quote, landmark operation uh, coordinated with BMP Paribas. I understood that. How excited are you? (laughs) Well, if I understood it, well, hang on, because, but you spoke to David Clark recently, who predicted. Yeah. What did he predict? So, as as ever, David Clark was bang on the money, which was uh, <laughs> in the in the Q3 edition of PNL. We had a piece from him, and um, you know, we reviewed some of his predictions from 20 years ago. Colin, you've got some you got some work to do with, there with your predictions. Um, <laughs> yes. We reviewed some of his predictions from 20 years ago, 
And then um, we asked him some of the future. And one of his surprise ones was that climate change would have more of an impact on uh, FX. Um, and we'd start to see that played out a little bit more there. So um, this, this is, these are the first FX hedging deals to be arranged under BNP Paribas' new sustainable derivatives platform, which is linked to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Um, so, it's, so Siemens Gamesa has converted a notional of 174 million euros in FX hedging deals to quote-unquote green transactions. So the derivatives are not only used to hedge the FX exposure of selling offshore wind turbines in Taiwan, in Taiwan they also have an impact on the sustainable development goals targets related to the climate action and affordable and clean energy. I understood absolutely none of that. It sounds to me <laughs> like they're giving... So what they're saying is we will make some money out of this so we'll give some money to projects, which is fine and, and good on them. So I've, I've just actually, while you were saying that, I've just quickly Googled the 17 Sustainable Development Goals, these SDGs, to transform yeah. our world as by the the, the uh, UN. So let's quickly run through them um, and see how they relate to an FX hedging transaction. Goal one, no poverty. Can't see it. I suppose you know, neither BNP nor Siemens would go poor on if, this, but if, there you go. If, yeah, if, if, the, if the company doesn't lose money, then it's shareholders, you know, the people who are buying stocks, who are trading online, won't see their value go down. Boom, done. Yeah, no. I think they're a bit way above the poverty line, maybe, but never mind. Goal two, zero hunger. Yeah, I don't think they're doing that one. That's fine. Yeah, I mean, they, they, don't, they don't have to hit all of them. Good health and well-being. Mm. Uh, yeah, healthy well, environment. It's healthy for everyone, yeah. Colin. Okay, that's fine. Quality education. Well, I've got to be honest, that press release did not educate me in any way whatsoever because I'm still in the dark. <laughs> so I don't think we can let them go that one. Gender equality, not really relevant. Right? Uh, yeah. Clean water and sanitation. Pass, I mean, pass. too many things that jump into my mind that are inappropriate for this podcast. Um, goal seven, affordable and clean energy. Well, that's what they were doing for the business, but the foreign exchange traction, has they got anything to do with that? They might be able to tie it to that, couldn't they? Um, yeah, I mean, so, so the quote from BMP is to, to accompany Siemens Gamesa's sustainable journey, the bank is providing this, this hedge of the FX exposure attached to a renewable project, as well as committing to reinvest any premium in a reforestation project. Oh, so they are giving the profit to, to charity then. Charity. Even. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So number eight, goal eight is decent work and economic growth. Whatever. Goal nine is industry, <laughs> innovation, and infrastructure. How is that a sustainable development goal for industry, innovation, and, well, yeah, maybe. Uh, reduced inequality, probably not going to have some much to do with that with an FX hedge. So only certain people can do it. Sustainable, sustainable cities and communities. No, not seeing that one. Responsible consumption and production. Ah, well, responsible production, they could get away with it on that one, couldn't they? If they're going to plant a few trees or, or, yeah. or support sustainable projects. I shouldn't exactly. be so disparaging about planting a few trees. I actually am a bit of a greenie on the quiet, but, um. But, but, we, on, okay. Yeah. We're laughing here, but on a serious note, you know, ERG, environmental, social and governance, um, yeah. 
kind of investments has has become you know a thing um, in recent yeah. years. Oh, absolutely. Do you, or, or seriously, do, do you think that, that this is going to be just one of of a lot more kind of ERG related projects that will start touching the the FX world? Well, I don't understand it, so I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, what is a what is a green hedge? You either hedge it or you don't. It's costing you money <laughs> in one currency. You're paying in another currency. You're going to swap those over. You know, it's green enough, really, because you're not actually sending people in cars or on planes with you know <laughs> with suitcases loaded with cash. Um, I'm trying it to means work out how FX hedge can be green. I think I think crypto should latch onto this and use it for marketing. Every transaction is a green transaction because there's no paper. There can be no they paper do trail. Kind, Yeah, they do kind of lose out though when it comes to the amount of when they're using the sort of electricity output of a small city to actually mine one bitcoin. <laughs> I don't know. It's not quite yeah, there. Kind of, kind of I mean, to, to finish off our goals, we've got climate action. Well, it is related to that. Life below water. Mm. Life on land. Mm. Peace and justice, strong institutions, don't even know what that means. And partnerships to achieve the goal. This is a partnership to achieve a goal, so maybe they're they're in there. So, yeah, okay, they'll get away with a few here, won't they? They'll, they'll tick a few boxes in the um, sustainable yeah. development goals. But I'm still trying to work out how a foreign exchange trade suddenly becomes green. What, see, what it strikes I, I me don't is, understand it, Colin, we're doing a foreign exchange trade. Great. Yes, uh, so do I, mate. So do I. Um, yeah, because let's face it, you know, what's happening, I think, is they're doing a foreign exchange trade. Normally, they will pay a premium. They're not going to, they're going to take the, they're still going to pay the premium, but they're going to give that away to sustainable projects. So effectively, it's a donation to charity. Is that really a green FX hedge? I'm not sure. Answers on a postcard, please, everyone. <laughs> um, and in fact, yes, um, if you're listening, David Clark, if this is what you meant, you better get in contact and explain to us what the hell is happening here. We don't understand. <laughs> and on the <laughs> usual note of us not understanding something, we'll end that uh, this week's podcast. Um, thanks very much for listening. We'll be back next week. Um, say answers on a postcard to our green energy. And uh, we'll speak to you then. Thanks for listening.